Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Boxing One. We're going to do a quick mailbag episode here this weekend. I know that I had promised a really fun video uh, podcast episode here this week with Stone Hansen breaking down Anthony Black and Cam Whitmore. Don't worry, folks. It's still in the works. Just didn't quite get to it this week. So I want to make sure we pump something out to all of you here on the podcast feed and keep you engaged. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Took some Twitter questions on the mailbag. If you don't follow us on Twitter at the box and one underscore, please make sure you do so. A lot of engaging stuff. All of our content goes up there and then we'll solicit some questions for future mailbags. So I just want to dive right in here today. Don't want to go too long, but want to be pretty quick, efficient, answering some of your questions. We had over 30 of them pour in there. So thank you so much for continuing to contribute to that conversation. Let's fly down the list here. Nathaniel Miller, another one of the, the great dudes out there on NBA Draft Twitter. And a really interesting point here. Uh, LeBron ushered in an era of targeting long wings to defend against him. Are we undervaluing how much teams in the West need to add size in the draft to defend against him, especially smaller teams like the Kings and the Warriors? Look, we're whether it's LeBron that you're going against in the NBA Finals or anybody else, size is a tiebreaker. It's a, a differentiator in so many ways. We're recording this right now between games one and game two of the NBA Finals where Denver made an unbelievable start to the series, just coming out and pounding the ball inside with Aaron Gordon, exploiting all of the mismatches and the lack of size that the Miami Heat have. So, yeah, it, it, it's really important for teams that don't have positional size across every position to be able to add that. It, it's tricky when you're smaller, you tend to build your roster a little bit more off of speed. The Sacramento Kings certainly have done so, and they need to find a way to not sacrifice that speed for a little bit more size on the defensive end of the floor. I think the same thing goes for Golden State. You know, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, the amount of shooting that they have might allow them to play one more bigger body or non-shooter. But, you know, it, there isn't as much space on this roster to have guys who come in and play next to Draymond Green, Kevon Looney, Aaron, uh, excuse me, Andrew Wiggins. They probably need somebody else off the bench who's just a different puzzle piece. All right. Draft Fanatics had a billion questions on here. I'm going to try to pick one or two of them. Uh, this one always stuck out to me. Which player in the draft has the highest basketball IQ? How much of an impact or value does IQ have for a draft pick? You know, I've talked about this throughout this draft cycle. I am starting to trend a little bit more towards the importance of high field prospects that these are guys that rarely fail at the top of drafts. If you can combine great feel with positional size, then that goes a long way. And I, I do think feel and basketball IQ are slightly different. Like feel is about reactivity to how the defense defends you, just making good plays based on what the defense gives you. I think IQ can be taken a little bit of a step further to know how to create those advantages for yourself, how to put the defense in a position where they will be disadvantaged. Um, you know, I, I think Anthony Black stands out to me as the guy who does have the highest basketball IQ in this class. He's been a, a consistent riser up my board the last month. He might be knocking on the on the, do the door of the fourth overall selection for me and a guy that would crack my top four. I don't know yet, but I'm a really big Anthony Black fan. 
And it shows on both ends of the floor, his basketball IQ. He knows how to rotate on defense. He's so timely with his bluffs. He doesn't really get backdoored and, and really understands what the offense is trying to accomplish. And then he uses his eyes so well to manipulate the defense. If I'm trying to evaluate basketball IQ, that's one of the first things I look for from a high volume pick and roll handler. Do they use their eyes to get the help defenders to move in a certain direction so that it opens up another passing avenue for them? Some of the best guys that I've evaluated the last few years, like Cade Cunningham, LaMelo Ball, Josh Giddy. Uh, I would uh, I would throw Tyrese Halliburton in that mix. They have all utilized that trait, and they're some of the, the most translatable playmakers to the NBA. So I'm really, really high on Anthony Black there. Another question here uh, from Draft Fanatics is going to be on the easiest skill to improve at the NBA level and what's the hardest. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think the easiest skill to improve at at the NBA level is hmm, probably going to be strength. Uh, strength is a skill. We see it talked about a lot in draft circles, but I do think that most players – physically mature when their bodies are able to and ready to mature. Sometimes it's very visible, right? Guys add a ton of bulk and muscle to their frame. In other ways, they just learn how to be balanced with the frame that they're given and add functional strength in ways that maybe muscle mass doesn't always gain. So that tends to happen over time naturally. But I do think that it is a skill that guys need to continue to work on because there are different levels of how strength can impact their game. The hardest for me is is kind of feel and, and playmaking. Um, I think that if a guy doesn't have a really tight handle, doesn't have a lot of reps prior to coming into the league of being able to make live dribble passing reads, that it's very hard to gain that type of skill at the next level. So uh, it's an interesting question to try to think about what are easiest and hardest to try to develop. But uh, I would say strength and adding strength is the easiest. The most difficult is live dribble passing reads and feel. All right. Evan McDaniel at Evan ETM asked about which prospect's name being called will be the most surprising on draft night, either way higher or way lower than consensus. Consensus is tough because I do think there are enough mainstream outlets with some diversity in how they would project their mocks right now that there are some players who vary on boards. I'm going to go with Keontae George out of Baylor. I, I think that he's going to be a surprise guy that ends up going lower than most people imagine. Um, not necessarily heard anything bad about Keontae's pre-draft workout process. I know he came in really in shape at the combine in Chicago. I just think that inefficient scorers are, you know, kind of difficult to peg sometimes in the draft that a lot of times they can become really high level contributors like a Tyler hero or a Jamal Murray. And other times they, they really fall out of the league rather quickly. And Keontae, the more that I watch him, the, the less I buy into the feel as a playmaker. I was really optimistic for that at the beginning of the draft cycle and season. Uh, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical and concerned about it now. I think some teams might fall into that same camp, but 
again, this is all conjecture. Like I think there are a lot of these scoring-minded guards or wings, the Keontae Georges, Nick Smith, Jet Howard, Bryce Sensabaugh, Dariq Whitehead, Max Lewis, all of these guys who are clumped together. And there's a lot of potential for bigger wings, more defensive-minded guys, athletic guys, to maybe leapfrog one or two of them into the late part of the teens. So I wouldn't be surprised to see any of them uh, kind of fall. But I think if I had to put one who I don't see mocked low enough in comparison to those that group of guys, it would probably be Keontae. Celtics draft 38. Another interesting question here. This class has a limited number of true bigs, uh, but out of the group, who is the most switchable on defense? I think this is important now that Adem Bona, Deron Holmes, some other guys have withdrawn from the draft. I have noticed a trend in the, in the NBA the last couple of years, really more so this last season, a lot more pick and roll defense being played at the level of the ball and more aggression on the point of attack as a result. So I don't know if the classic model of being a drop pick and roll big is really what NBA teams are looking for, unless it's for an elite drop pick and roll big man, like a Derek Lively, for example. So if I had to pick one true big in this class to be more switchable at the point of attack, I think, I think I would go with James Najee. And as I'm just scrolling through my big board right now, there aren't a ton of guys that are available there. Like, you know, Adama Sonogo, I don't think of him as being switchable, although his feet are quicker than he gets credit for. Uh, I don't know if you would call Noah Clowney a true big man, and I still worry about his fluidity in space. Uh, you know, Celtics fan who asked, or Celtics draft who asked this question really was was also hinting about Leonard Miller potentially being a center in more of the Kavon Looney mold. I think that's a definite possibility long-term. Uh, I have thought about him playing the five in a lot of different lineups, and he would be super switchable in that regard. But if the question is framed around true bigs, guys whose optimal position is going to be playing the five, at least from the moment they enter the league, I think Najee is probably the one guy who I would call the most switchable. All right, let's find another really good question here. Oh, this is an interesting one from Leopoldo. Uh, Nick Smith and some other guys suffered some injuries this year. He asked, how much do you ignore what you saw of Smith this year because of the ongoing injury problem? Same with Jet Howard. I would probably lump Derek Whitehead into this conversation too. I don't think you can ignore anything. You've just got to find the right context for what you're seeing. You've got to be able to attribute some of the challenges to the injury, to some of the time missed, et cetera. And you've got to be really precise. If you're going to override what you've seen based on injury, you've got to be really precise on keying into how it was different at the high school level. It can be hard to do sometimes because the college basketball game is so much quicker that guys might not look as bursty, but still have more comparative burst when they're playing at that high school level. So really hard to say sometimes uh, this is the challenge of, of draft scouting, right? Some guys get hurt. Some guys don't have a clean transition from high school to college. And the context from both is really important to weigh. It's probably got to be an individual by individual basis to, to correctly contextualize it. 
So I don't know if there is a blanket answer to be able to, to say one size fits all for, hey, we got a guy who's dealing with injury problems. Here's where we look. Here's how much of it we value and how much of it we don't. Brandon McIntyre uh, asking the question that a lot of us have been thinking about in the draft space. Do you have any takeaways or changes in evaluations of prospects based on the Heat's success with undrafted guys? Oh, you know, I think for me, it's not necessarily a change in what I'm evaluating if I have a draft pick, but more so what type of player and mental makeup I'm going to reward for guys who I think can make it that go undrafted. I don't know if I phrased that as smoothly as I can have, but I'll, I'll try to explain through an example that I gave. So earlier this week, I put out a thread on Twitter describing Miami Heat culture a little bit. Some of the traits that they as a team and the individuals on it embody that allow them to be so successful. And one of them is this chip on your shoulder mentality that so many of these guys have been overlooked throughout their basketball careers, told they're not good enough, whether that's through you know, alternative pathways like playing Division Three, Division Two basketball before turning pro, junior college before getting a Division One offer. Those guys tend to have just a different mentality and mindset. And if you're going to take a guy who goes undrafted or ends up in your G League program and you really want to rise through the ranks, I think the experience of knowing how to overcome that adversity, not really care what level you're at and just find ways to succeed and make the most out of it is really important. So I think the mental makeup is something that I'm going to be paying a little bit more attention to outside of the top 50 or 60 guys. You know, we talk about understanding the person you draft as well as the player that you draft being vital, particularly when you're handing the guy millions of dollars in the lottery and, and anywhere else in the first round and maybe even the second round. But I think that you've got to look for a specific type of person and competitor to be able to overcome where they're drafted. So maybe it means paying more attention to the margins of, you know, guys who don't have those content conventional pathways to the league and seeing if you can get to know them well enough to anticipate their continual rise. But again, this is never an exact science and, uh, I don't know if there's a better answer than just saying it's the right fit between or the right mesh between having the talent to continue to play at this level and having that chip on your shoulder at all times to just make the most of whatever opportunity you have and earn more. Uh, Nick asked an interesting question here. I keep saying interesting. I got to chill with that word. Uh, who are some prospects you expect to rise in the next few weeks? Similar to a guy like Kobe Brown. Yeah, I love Kobe Brown. Pretty unabashed about that. Would love to see him sneak into the late part of the first round. Ben Shepard out of Belmont, another guy who I've just really fallen in love with. We've seen Omax Prosper's name start to rise a little bit. Maybe even Bilal Koulibaly getting on that lottery hype train. I don't know if there are too many other guys that have caught my eye at this point that I would hope to rise into that late first round area. I've heard some rumblings about a guy like Amari Bailey. I've heard Pajemski has done really well for himself after the combine. And I got to go back and watch a little bit more of Pajemski. He tends to be a more challenging eval for me. So want to get a feel for that, but not hearing a ton of other guys sneaking into the late first round discussion right now. 
Josh Reisinger, uh, definitely been watching what we're doing here at the Box and One, mentioned a disconnect between the lack of concern for shooting in draft circles and the reality of guys who can't shoot in the NBA playoff. Considering guys like Amen Thompson and Anthony Black, what do you see as their range of outcomes and how do you reconcile that with their lack of shooting? It's an important question, Josh, and I want to make sure that I'm here to clarify. The disconnect comes from the lack of role players who can't shoot. Guys who can't go out there and create their own shot, be a focal point of the offense with the ball in their hands. And this is particularly meant for wings in that discussion because wings tend to be those off-ball players who you send to the corners of the floor very often for offensive spacing. Anthony Black and Amen Thompson are such high processors of the game of basketball, really good, strong athletes, and have positional size that they can break down a defense and get into the lane even without a jump shot. So their offensive value comes in different ways. Now, there are a wide range of outcomes for both of them because the jump shot is such a question mark right now. They can be defended in different ways that try to dare them to shoot or almost force them to do so because the lane is taken away, and that can really alter their usage on the offensive end. But for me and what I've noticed about these NBA playoffs the disconnect is about those non-shooting wings, the guys whose offensive ceiling is contingent on them having an off-ball skill. And while a man and Anthony Black would be so much better as prospects if they were elite catch-and-shoot guys, they have a go-to on-ball skill that just takes them out of this kind of conversation. Tingus Pingus, and I can't believe I said that out loud. Uh, here's one here. Is there a range in this draft that you think is better than most other drafts? For example, 2023 drafts, 15 to 20 range is better than most drafts, 15 to 20 range. Well, after this early entrant withdrawal deadline, I certainly don't think that outside of the top 35 or 40, there are going to be, there's better depth in this class. I I think the NIL has really changed the way that landscape works. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's not anything late. And in the second round, I think there's a pretty steep drop off for where I'm at with like the 11 through 13 range on my personal board, maybe 11 through 14, but they're no stronger than any other year. It may just be one and two like Victor women. Scoot Henderson is as good of a one, two punch that I probably have ever seen in a draft class. And that's no disrespect to 2018, which is the first year I got into this, but man, those two guys just strike me as generational type of talent. So the range is, is pretty short one to two. I do believe that there's depth. I do believe there's a lot of first round talent, but no more than most drafts, at least over the last few years. All right. Another Pajemski question, because this is the guy that keeps killing me. Uh, Luol Cinder, that's a nice play on words there with the pun on Twitter. How would you value Pajemski in comparison to Max Lewis, specifically for the Grizzlies at 25? I think the Grizzlies would prefer a guy like Pajemski. Uh, the feel, the rebounding, kind of the, the analytics test, so to speak, is a little bit higher for him. I tend to think the Grizzlies want got 
guys who know how to pass at their position. And Max Lewis does not strike me as a guy who at his position adds much playmaking feel or pop for this team. So I would call Pajemski a more Grizzlies based uh, guy than, than Lewis. And certainly the analytical tests that we've found the Grizzlies tend to use to filter through prospects veers more towards Pajemski than it does towards Max. All right here. Why is Cason Wallace fallen given his perceived floor from hopeful TTF Maple? Probably positional size. You know, we're, we're seeing how many teams are veering bigger in the postseason, and Wallace did not overly impress with his measurements on pro day. He's got good length, certainly really strong, but teams just like the optionality and the versatility that comes with having bigger players. So in a draft where there are guys like Anthony Black as a 6'7 kind of lead guard, the Thompson twins were around 6'7". Jalen hood Shafino, who's maybe 6'5", 6'6", with a massive wingspan. You're seeing all of these playmakers rise on boards ahead of the smaller option like Wallace. So I tend to think of it less as Kaysen falling and more about the league just looking at trends that are sticking right now and elevating all the guys who check those automatic boxes. I think there's still a really good chance Kaysen goes in the lottery. Again, all it takes is one team to fall in love with him and the intangibles and that Kentucky effect to see that there's so much more that he can bring. I still have Wallace in my top 10, but I understand why the league is trending to where it is and how that could just impact Wallace's draft stock on draft night. Ben Glover, if you were the Thunder, is Bilal Koulibaly worth a promise at 12? The answer for me right now is no. Quick primer and preview here. I'm going to be doing something on Koulibaly in the next few days. So keep your eyes locked for that. Video, in-depth piece. Just talking a lot more about the guys I talked about earlier. These big, athletic, non-shooting wings who don't project as top options with the ball in their hands. We had an array of questions from Array. I'm going to pick one of them here. AJ Griffin or Bryce Sensabaugh as prospects for you? Ooh, that's actually a tricky one. I was relatively low on AJ a year ago, but I did still have him in the teens. Really worried about the defense. He has answered those questions already uh, to a certain degree as a rookie. But again, I've got to try to, to put that aside a little bit here because I'm trying to think of them as prospects. I think it probably is AJ. Uh, I believe in the shooting touch, as I do for Bryce. But I, I also think that with Bryce, the decision-making and feel isn't necessarily there to evolve and do a lot on the offensive side. Uh, I worry about self-creation from three. I worry about Sensiball being very mid-range heavy. He may be a guy who slides a little bit further down my board over the next few weeks as we get closer, particularly if I fall in love with another really good role player type of guy like I have with Omax and Kobe Brown recently. So an interesting question there. I'm going to go with AJ Griffin. All right. Ryan Snyder, who's the best player you're confident will not go in the first round? I think the later part of the first round is so damn wide open in this draft class that it's really hard to say 
that anybody won't go. Like I'm looking at my big board right now. I think anybody all the way down to 40 has a chance to go in the first round and maybe a couple guys who I'm lower on than that, like Trace Jackson Davis, Andre Jackson, Amari Bailey. I could see them sneaking in. The best player who I don't think will go in the first round. I'm going to put that at Ben Shepard from Belmont right now. Uh, I can see and justify a way that he sneaks in there. But I'm looking at the teams that are drafting late. Indiana and Utah have multiple first-round picks. They each have three. Uh, Indiana has two of them in the late 20s. I don't know if I would see them taking a more secure guy like Shepard in that first round range. I think the Clippers tend to be more of a high gamble team in terms of late first, early second round picks of what we've seen from their draft record lately. Shepard doesn't really fit that mold. Charlotte, depending on what they do at number two will be interesting. If they take scoot, I think they've got to prioritize shooting and maybe a little bit more size and defensive effort to blanket them. So Shepard doesn't check those boxes. Again, talent-wise, dependable role player. I can see how Shepard could have a chance to sneak his way into the first round here, but he's going to be my pick of best player that I would have that's not in that range. Last question here comes from Dr. Clam, the Medicine Mollusk. What is the background music that you use in your videos? It's incredibly soothing, and I didn't know I needed that for my tape-watching experience. Dr. Clam. Shalom. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Smith the Mister has been my go-to guy here for the last three years. Just found him kind of on, on YouTube and really love the instrumental versions of things that he does. It fit the vibe and the, the sound that I was kind of looking for. Somewhat relaxing, but catchy to keep you engaged and maybe wanting to watch another video or two, humming these in your head once you put the video down. But I agree. Not necessarily as intense all the time, but somewhat soothing, decent pace to the beat. Smith and Mr. checks all those boxes. So I know my channel and my content wouldn't be where it is without the great work of Smith and Mr. Go give him a follow on Spotify, on any of the audio library platforms that are out there for creators to find free music from. I, I do give him credit and, and a lot of those uh, links are available in the comments and descriptions of my YouTube video. So again, a nice hat tip to Smith the Mister. That's going to do it for the mailbag here today, folks. Thank you so much for, for tuning in, for all the support here at the Box and One. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe for everything that we have on YouTube, here on all of our podcast platforms. Big week coming up. A lot of scouting reports and videos on some bigger wings. Julian Phillips, Jordan Walsh, Bilal Kula Bali, some more think pieces coming out as we get closer to the draft. Another great video podcast coming up, breaking down the differences between Cam Whitmore and Anthony Black, two guys that are neck and neck at that five and six spot on my personal big board. Just a really fun week coming up. As always, thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.